Hey, um, I wonder if you ha- ever have an experience where when you read something and it just grabs you and you go, I need to sit in that, I need to think about that, what does that actually mean, is it true? Um, just recently, I, I've, I've read this a while ago in a book, but I read another book just recently where it was quoted from the original book that I'd read. And the statement was this, that reality is what you bump into when you're wrong. And I just want to sit in that and, and just look, you know, in terms of the scripture and what scripture reveals to us, sometimes there's stuff that goes on in our world, in our thinking, in our behaviour, in our way we do life, that sometimes we need some reality to hit that and reshape something. So I want to start this morning with uh, not, a, not a really positive vibe, actually. I'm going to start with two things that you don't want to hear. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're part of a church community, here are two passages of Scripture that you probably don't want to hear. But we'll see what it says. First one is this. This is Jesus talking towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Imagine being on the receiving end of that. As a church community, imagine being on the receiving end of the letter that the church in Sardis received, where it starts with this, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Imagine receiving that. And that's what the church in Sardis received. We've been going through the letters to the seven churches in Revelation and uh, we're up to the fifth church, the church of Sardis. And so I want to read for you what it actually says. So on the screen you'll see. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Can we go to the next screen, please? Uh, next one. Thanks. Um, these are the words of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast. And repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, for they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. I'm just doing some pirouettes here. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, 
but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pretty full-on message to receive as a church community. Sorry to mess you around, Bill. I'll go back to that original slide. We've been looking at this pattern that's been happening in the uh, churches. And generally we see this format. There's a name for Jesus or a reference to who Jesus is, and that comes out of Revelation chapter 1. There's a commendation, there's a complaint, there's a correction, and there's a promise. And we'll unpack that as we go through. So the city of Sardis, you may have heard of it, you may not, but a very wealthy city. Really um, popular back in, in this time when, when it was just this, well, not a massive city, but it was, it was a city where many roads led into it, so there was a lot of commerce, there was a lot of wealth. Um, it was built on a hill originally, and it was deemed to be impenetrable. So it was this city up on a cliff. As the city grew, there wasn't enough room on the cliff, so it started to spread out down below the cliff, and that was a bit more vulnerable to the, to the city that was up on top of the cliff. The history of this place, um, they actually had been sacked twice in their history. Uh, they were sacked by Cyrus the Persian in about 550 BC and by a Greek king, Antiochus, I'll get his name right, Antiochus in 218 BC. And both times they were sacked because they assumed their position up on the hill being impenetrable, they didn't really have to keep watch. They became lazy. They became so self-focused that they forgot to protect that which, that which was most precious. And so twice this city had been ransacked when they thought that could never happen. This city was actually famed where probably they think, historians think, modern currency was invented and created. It was the place where they were rich with gold and they actually started minting coins. And there was just unparalleled affluence. And this extended through to the church. People lacked for nothing. People's position came to be about my security, my identity, my purpose, my goal was all about material wealth. That's what was keeping us going. We see a picture on the screen. These are some coins that were, were dug up from that area that are now in the British Museum. And, and the uh, Emperor Domitian is on the head's side of the coin. And on the tail side, if we go to the next one, it's a little bit clearer... You see, on the tail side of this coin, where the Roman emperor had commissioned the minting of these gold coins, there's a picture there of his son, who he had deified to become a god, sitting on the world holding seven stars. And here's Jesus sending this letter saying, I am the one who holds the seven stars. I just love those little things that happen as we read through this. And so this church may have pleased men, might have been a great place to be part of, but it didn't please God. Remember that the church's role in the world is to represent Jesus to the people around us, for Jesus to be evident, to be present, for his character, for his nature, to extend into the community 
around where the church exists. And this church was not doing that. So we get to the, uh, the name, the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now the seven spirits of God is, is a, most likely a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah is talking about Jesus coming and he says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And it's the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit has got some of these attributes contributed to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus saying, I am the one who holds the spirit. I am the actual spirit of God. And I am the one who holds the seven stars, which we know from earlier are the seven churches. And so Jesus is identifying who he truly is at the beginning of this letter. And then comes the rebuke. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. From the NLT translation, it says, I know all the things you do, but you're dead. It goes on to use this metaphor of of soiled clothes. And maybe these people who've allowed their clothes to be soiled Maybe it's spiritual laziness, maybe it's idolatry, maybe it's tolerating some sort of immoral behaviour within the church, maybe it's becoming so accustomed to those around us that we don't really look different as, as the church. Now Paul, Paul writes about this as well, this is before John wrote this letter, but Paul writes about this, look at what he says to Timothy. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Understand this, in the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, impelled by greed. They'll be unholy and profane, lovers of sensual pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of outward godliness or religion, although they have denied its power, for their conduct nullifies their claim of faith. Avoid such people and keep away from them. That's a great description of the church in Sardis. In uh, the NLT version of that same passage, I like verse 5, it says, They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. It's the Holy Spirit. Imagine receiving that letter as a church. And basically the message is you're going through all the motions, you're doing church, but you've missed the point completely. You've missed the point completely. The spirit is not present. The spirit is not leading. You're not relying on the Holy Spirit. It's pretty confronting. And So then he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The message translation says, maybe there's life in you yet. But I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's work is being completed. It became all about us. What feels good for us? What do we like? What do we want church to be? 
How can it appease my desires? Paul writes to the Romans at the end of the letter of Romans in chapter 13, starting in verse 11. Look at this. He says, This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armour of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarrelling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. This letter to the Romans could well have been in circulation that the church in Sardis could have come across that letter and had it even read out in their church. That is possible. But the church in Sardis had missed it. Most biblical scholars would argue that the church in Sardis looked so similar to the culture around them that you couldn't even tell. Maybe the difference was they met together once a week. Now, my journey, God really confronted me with this a few years ago where I had this realisation that I call myself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but the only thing that looks different to my neighbours is that I go to church Sunday. I desire the same sort of lifestyle. I'm interested in the same sort of things. And there was this gentle conviction from the Holy Spirit that that's not actually what I've called you to. So I started using a phrase that sounded like this. There's got to be more to the Christian life than this. I'm reading this stuff in the Bible, particularly through Acts and into the Paul's letters about what the church looks like and what a follower of Jesus looks like, and I'm looking at my own life and going, they, they don't match up. I'm really no different to anyone else around me except I go to church on Sunday. God then took me on a journey. I'm still on that journey. But there's something about it, unless, unless an ember is fanned into flame, it's just going to burn out, it's going to die out. You know, you remove a coal from a fire, it doesn't stay a red-hot burning coal for long. And this church in Sardis was cold. And now comes the correction. So Jesus says to this church, remember. So bring back to memory. Start living it. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. I feel like I use this passage of Scripture every time I speak. But Romans 12, chapter 2 is just awesome to get in our heads around what does it mean to repent. In the NLT, it says, don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, 
but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That's repentance. Changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. If I had a dollar for every time I've asked the question or someone has asked me the question, how do I work out what God's will for me is? How do you know that? Well, when we repent, when we change the way we think about God, life, life with God, when we change the way we think about that and align it with Scripture, then God's will is revealed to us. In that passage I read right at the beginning, that first passage you don't want to hear, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that only the one who does the will of my Father is the one who will be with him in his kingdom. What is the will of God? Reminds me of the parable of the sower. Jesus talked about this idea of the word of God going out like seed. And we read in verse 7 of chapter 13 of Matthew, he's talking, Some seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Jesus then, further on in the chapter, describes what does that actually mean. And he says in verse 22 of chapter 13, he says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth Choke the word, making it unfruitful. A very popular passage is John chapter 10, verse 10. In the message it says this, A thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, says Jesus, so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. So we're seeing this connection between God's will and eternal life, putting God first, having God as Lord, central, and then he's revealing his will to you through that disposition. And then Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, Now this is eternal life. Do you want to know what eternal life is? This is it. That they would know you as the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we get this picture of this church in Sardis who had forgotten where they started. Jesus was no longer Lord. Jesus was no longer central. They could do this whole church thing without really referencing Jesus, without relying on him, without worshipping him, without being led by him. It's pretty scary stuff if you find yourself in that place. And then he goes on to say in this letter, he says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. What a perfect thing to say to the city of Sardis, where that very thing happened to them in their history. That like a thief in the night, King Cyrus and the other Greek king 
launched a raid on this city like a thief in the night and completely overtook them. Did not know it was coming. And then we have the commendation to this church. This is verse 4. It says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. I love what the message says here. It says, You still have a few followers of Jesus in Sardis who haven't ruined themselves wallowing in the muck of the world's ways. They've proved their worth. So this walking in white, this dressed in white, could be a reference to purity, could be a reference to victory, could be a reference to the fact that they're justified through Jesus, through his life, death and resurrection. And it's also linked, as we'll see, to having your name written in the book of life. So it's not much of a commendation, but there's a little one there. There's a few of you who still haven't completely fallen away yet. And then the promise to those who overcome, verse 5, the one who is victorious will, like them, them being the ones who haven't yet fallen away, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white, and I will never blot out their name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. The church is Jesus enfleshed in this world. Jesus said he would build his church. His church is to represent who he is. It's to be done in community. I can't represent the character and nature of Jesus very well on my own, but but we can. And so the church is so precious to Jesus... There's this metaphor that we see in the New Testament of Jesus being the groom and the church being the bride. Now, in this role, I get to do uh, a few weddings. It's a real honour to actually conduct a wedding for people. And I often will stand there as the bride is walking down the aisle and have a little bet to myself in my head whether the groom's going to cry or not. (laughs) Because there's something about... Being a groom, watching your bride walk towards you down an aisle, that is overwhelming. I remember my wedding day and I I felt like crying, but something in me said, don't cry, don't be stupid, don't you dare cry. And I just tried to do everything but let my emotion overtake me to the fact where I hardly even watched Tanya walk down the aisle because I would have lost it. Maybe we'll do that again one day. Who knows? Hopefully not. Um, But look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. With that picture in mind, Paul is writing to this church and he says, Husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Why is God, why is Jesus seem to be pretty harsh with this church? Because that's a picture of the church he's coming back for. And the church in Sardis was nothing like that. But if we really want to know what these white robes look like, we just need to go to Scripture. Later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, look at what it says. Again, we've got that picture of the bride and the groom. It says, this is John saying what he's seeing. Then I heard again what sounded like a shout of a vast crowd or a roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honour to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. So Jesus is painting this picture. For those who overcome, for those in the church who, who don't get pulled into everything that the world is trying to drag them into, for those who stay loyal to Jesus, relying on the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being shaped to become more Christ-like, for those people... This white linen represents the good deeds of God's holy, set-apart people. And then it talks about having your name in the book of life. I think it's important to note that having your name blotted out of the book of life is actually a warning against assuming that belonging to a church community is all I really need to do. If I just make the effort on a Sunday morning to get out of bed and turn up to a place like this and I've ticked my box, God's got to be pleased with me because I've gone to church, let this be a warning to us. Irrespective of our attitude, behaviour, our position in the church requires so much more than attendance to a building. You know, when this idea of God having a book with your name written in it, this idea is right back in Exodus. You might know that story where, where Moses goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and while he's up there, um, the people were hanging around going, well, this guy seems to have disappeared. We need someone to lead us. And so they created this golden calf as an image to, to sort of lead them. And there's a whole story on why it was a calf, but we'll get into that another day. And Moses comes down and finds what's going on. And this is in Exodus 32. Moses says to the people, you've committed a great sin. And I'll go and see if I can sort this out with God. And he said, Moses said to God, these people have really sinned here. Please forgive them. But if not, this is Moses on behalf of the people, but God, if you don't forgive them, blot me out of the book that you've already written. 
And God replies to Moses and he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go and lead these people. So right back in Exodus, there's this idea that there's, whether it's a literal book or I don't know, but there's this idea that God has recorded those who are overcomers. Those whose sin is not getting in the way of that relationship with God. And so to those who have woken up and stay unpolluted, and those who have overcome, Jesus promises, and here's the promise, he will acknowledge them before his Father and the angels in heaven. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, it says this, I tell you the truth, this is Jesus talking, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. Now, so although this is a pretty harsh letter to a church community, there's this hope at the end. There's this hope that Jesus will vouch for anyone who stays true to him, to who follows him. That person will be accepted. That person will be presented by Jesus to God himself. Imagine that. Occasionally I've given a reference for someone and you'll get a phone call and they'll say, oh, look, this person's applied for a job and you know, they've put you down as a referee. You know, what, what can you say about them? Yeah, and, you, and you say a few things, and it's, it's like you're vouching for this person. Imagine that on steroids, and Jesus, arm around you, comes up before the very throne of heaven and goes, all right, he's with me, she's with me. I vouch for this one. Imagine being in that position. And so there's this final picture that those who overcome... There's this hope and encouragement that we're with Jesus. He sees us. He knows us. He vouches for us. But the thing that stops that in this church in Sardis is that the whole environment around them, the whole culture, dare I say even the church culture that exists, is not conducive to being a follower of Jesus. What do we do with this? We, I, was, I was thinking, what do I do with this? And the only place I landed was, God, I just, can you hold a mirror up? Can you actually let me see what you see? Where are my gaps? Where am I failing? Where do I need your encouragement? And it's a pretty game prayer to pray, but to go, God, can you actually point those things out for me? Because I actually want to be a person who holds on to the very truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and his spirit in me and leading me and I want to live in a way that shows Jesus to the rest of the people around me. I don't want to be so similar to those who don't know God that that people just can't tell. I want to see church as more than this place I might choose to attend on Sunday morning. 
I want to see church as the body of Christ that Jesus is so passionate about that he puts it together just the way he wants it so that we collectively, when we do life together, can reflect God in, in a way that, that is, is not possible anyway else in our world. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I don't want this personal religion where it's about my own personal salvation and because it's so personal I'll never share it with anybody that's actually not what we're called to and so as a church my prayer is that we can read this letter we can heed the warning and we can push into Jesus and the reliance of the Holy Spirit so much that we become a church that is alive and vibrant a sanctuary vibrant with life, where Jesus is so tangible and visible to anyone who who comes across this community that they meet him. Not just a bunch of people who hang out at a club. It's pretty confronting, but there's such encouragement in it as well. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for... The fact that you love us so much, you speak truth to us. You don't let us be self-deceived. But through your spirit, you gently nudge, you gently convict, you gently correct. I just pray we would have a heart as individuals and as a church to align ourselves with the being the type of people that you call us to be, that you desire us to be, that you shape us to be. Now, when you first called your disciples, Jesus, you said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus, my prayer for us as Coast Community is that you would continue to make us the people that you want us to be. I pray that you would continue to shape us, to guide us, to lead us in a way that results in you being so obviously tangible in this place that anyone who comes across Coast Community or comes across your church generally meets the risen Jesus and has a revelation and an encounter with the Holy Spirit that changes lives. That's our prayer and I just pray you would work in all of us as we do this together in Jesus' name. Amen.